Welcome to the Outsiders Football and Philosophy Podcast. Myself and Sai had a live Zoom chat with Jus van der Leij, the Dutch philosopher, statistician, uh, and we quizzed him on several facets of football that um, some of the outsiders in the world um, that look on in at football might not have any idea about. He knows everything there is to know about data and about potential and most importantly about probability. So here's our live chat. I hope you enjoy. Thank you very much. Well, good evening. And um, I want to thank uh, Joost van der Leij for coming to join us for this live conversation for the Outsiders podcast. Uh, I'm Sai. You are right, Stu? Hi, mate. How are you doing? Good to see you. Um, for those of you who have never seen our faces before, um, this is our first video that we're doing, and I'm sure you're as underwhelmed as, as our mothers were <laughs> when we were born. Um, but thankfully, we've got somebody who can bring a bit of class to our proceedings, and that's uh, Joost. Joost, uh, could you um, introduce yourself um, a little bit for us um, in terms of your areas of expertise and why we're talking to you this evening? Uh, yeah, well, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my uh, area of expertise is I studied philosophy um, twice, actually. Uh, I did it uh, at an early age, uh, uh, and then I figured out that uh, to study philosophy, you really have to be 35 of years old or older. Otherwise, you don't get it, uh, what it's about. it's about. So I started it again. And I actually taught philosophy as a student assistant to a freshman at the University of Utrecht. And then I got involved uh, in uh, all different things, uh, computer business, software. Uh, but then I found uh, something called neuro-linguistic programming. And I discovered that I liked uh, programming people much more than programming uh, computers. Hmm. Um, and as it happens, uh, NLP is most often uh, mistaken for a kind of psychology, but it's actually much more philosophy. So that's my background uh, uh, is uh, quite, uh, it fits very well. Um, and uh, so, so I have two expertise or two uh, main interests in the philosophy. First is the philosophy of mind and action. It's basically uh, about uh, what, what is conscious, uh, how, uh, what's the difference between an event and, an, and, uh, and something we do, and stuff like that. And uh, also uh, the whole philosophy of language. Uh, what, uh, is, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Wittgenstein. Well, basically, uh, Nietzsche is uh, one of my favorite philosophers. Uh, Wittgenstein, and uh, yeah, nobody knows him, but he's a uh, philosopher of statistics, uh, Bruno de Finetti. Um, and it's the other expertise or area that I really love is uh, philosophy of statistics. Mm. Now, philosophy is already a very small niche, but philosophy of statistics is even uh, much smaller than that. There are very few uh, philosophers who actually find it interesting, but I do. Mm. Um, and then uh, uh, by happenstance or because uh, people hear, heard about me being able to program humans and then Hanover contacted me, uh, they were just relegated and they wanted to know whether I could uh, program their uh, football players so that they would then um, get back into the Bundesliga, which actually happened, but it was not my uh, doing and it was just because they... Uh, uh, really had better players than uh, their performance uh, should indicate. But unfortunately, they uh, relocated a year after again. So now they're still in the, the second Bundesliga. Um, but that uh, got everything rolling. Um, and now I'm uh, working um, within the football uh, world. 
um, both for clubs and for uh, uh, individual uh, player agents. For clubs, I uh, search uh, to, uh, for players or do second opinions on players they found themselves uh, to uh, have the, them know what I think about them. Actually, did it today again for FC Twente Dutch club. They're looking for, uh, I, can't talk, I can't talk about it, but they're looking for a player. That's that much I can say. And uh, the, the head of scouting wanted to hear my opinion on three different players. Um, but it's all, uh, of course, uh, quite uh, say secretive because uh, they fear that players will be uh, bought by other, by other clubs. Um, but they're also working with agents and then it's uh, basically the other way around. How can we present uh, the player in such a way that the club knows uh, what he uh, what they can expect from him so that then uh, players that i find good i only uh, promote players that, I, that are according to my statistics are good players uh, and then we have a number of clubs that i send that information to and then uh, fortunately uh, now and then uh, uh, clubs actually hire the players that i recommend and so far we have uh, quite an excellent track record uh, there was one exception, uh, I don't know whether you know him, it's called Czerny, of Czerny. he played for Ajax, and then uh, we advised him to go to FC Utrecht, FC Utrecht actually got him, but he bombed the whole season, didn't match with the manager, so that was our only, um, I say, uh, uh, blemish on our uh, reputation, but fortunately FC Twente uh, hired Czerny this year, and he did brilliantly for them, so now my reputation is intact again. <laughs> so um, I guess um, before we press in to a little bit more of the, the discussion around the difference between statistical philosophy and, and continental philosophy, um, I'm fascinated. This is, a, this is a philosophy and a football podcast. I'm fascinated about, um, in some ways, um, the aberrations, because what it looks like is, is you've got a modern system that shows, you know, um, the very best chance of what we're saying is going to happen but obviously football at times can there can be anomalies that come out but also Definitely. a little bit about the um the Hanover and the uh, sort of the working with them and and particularly um what sort of work were you doing because you sort of you mentioned that you were there to sort of help them get get promoted um what what did that sort of look like and how did that look like in terms of your interactions with the players and and the the insiders of the club Yes. Well, unfortunately, with Hanover, we only got into discussions how we would how we would approach uh, the whole thing. Uh, uh, football is a very conservative uh, business, and they never say no. They uh, are open for any idea, but they never say yes uh, to anything that is new as well. Uh, so we never got uh, around to actually work with the players with Hanover. Um, but when we do work with players, then it's all about uh, first. What we do is uh, I have a system that's based on something called cybernetic big five theory that uh, normally people will say it's about their personality, but uh, cybernetic big five theory uh, shows that uh, we don't have a personality, but what we call personality are actually uh, evolutionary behavioral patterns. Our brain formed in uh, 100,000 years ago. And uh, there, there are basically two models of the brain. Uh, so we all know about the brain that is a network where you, uh, before your puberty, you build up the network. During puberty, uh, the network is pruned. So you only get those connections that you actually use. And then from age of 20, then you can only strengthen or weaken existing uh, links. That is the whole um, brain model of how the brain learns. 
but beside that model is a way lesser known model, but actually shows that depending on what kind of brain cells you have, that you uh, have different behaviors. So there are like a thousand different brain cells and some are more uh, sensitive to dopamine than others, others are more sensitive to oxytocin than others. And depending on the kind of brain cells that you have, and this is all neuroscience, so you can actually uh, make a uh, functional MRI scanner and then you can see uh, what kind of brain cells people have, what kind of structures. So there's a theory uh, from an American professor called cybernetic big five theory. I've created a dynamic version of it and much more uh, practical because the, the theory is always uh, very theoretical. Um, is that, is that, we, sorry, sorry to continue. Is that, is that to help analyze um, footballers or is it to use uh, after that analysis, if that's part of it, to, to improve performance or personality? Uh, basically, uh, once, you, once you know one's, uh, someone's brain, of a player's brain type, you know what motivates them, how they deal with emotions, and how they learn, and basically the cognition. And it tells you a lot about uh, um, how they, uh, we do it especially with young players, uh, age 15 and older, to see if they can actually make it as a pro player. Uh, it's a very, very tough uh, uh, say a route to, to become a professional player and you have to sacrifice a lot. And we know that all brain types are capable of doing it, but some brain types, it's more into their natural uh, way of living. And for others, you have to really know where the, the, the pitfalls are so you can make sure that they uh, avoid those pitfalls. So that's part of it. The other part is, is that uh, once you want to influence uh, your players, so that's why I work with player agents, if you want to influence them, then you have to take into account how their brain works. And then finally, is there the interaction between the manager and the, and the player and the staff and the player is pretty much also, uh, uh, I say, uh, not determined, but, uh, but let me explain it. The manager basically uh, selects the uh, starting 11 based on his intuition. Uh, they have all kinds of data analysis and opposition research, and, but, but they're basically the manager said, well, this, this feels uh, good or, or bad, this player. And, but unfortunately, certain combination of brain types also give people a bad feeling. And the manager cannot make a distinction between whether this feeling is the bad feeling that he has for a player, whether it is coming from his intuition that he's a bad player and he should not play with him, or that it has to do with the difference in brain type. So um, what we uh, do for uh, clubs is then that they know the brain types of the players and the staff. So they know that if there are frictions uh, or whether that has to do with the brain types or not. And what we do for the player agent is that we actually, uh, and they, I work for player agent that is very good player, so he can make a lot of demands. So we are actually going to check and say, okay, if you want the player as a club, good. But we first want to check the brain type of the managers to make sure that it doesn't conflict with the player. Amazing. Um, I've, I've got two questions that, that, I, that coming from that that I'm dying to ask you. The first one is, do you do any retrospective analysis on players? So do you look at great players from the past and say they have this personality type and do they have something in common with each? So does, um, do the great strikers of the past have something in common with each other? Do the great uh, midfielders? And second of all, just sorry, um, do you think that football is, is, has an intellect to it? Yes, oh, the last part is very easy to explain. Yes, that, that's, it is a very intellectual uh, um, game. 
and the whole business around it. It's so much about getting a, a small edge on your uh, uh, opposing teams that the clubs are so much willing to do so much for just a small edge, so just a little, maybe one or 2% uh, better chance of winning than they used to have, that uh, there's a lot of uh, intellectual interest. I always say that, of course, nobody is interested in philosophy at all within the society, and uh, that you two are, are exceptions. Um, <laughs> Except, of course, for philosophers. Philosophers love philosophy. Uh, but the, the, the second uh, um, place where people love philosophy the most is actually in football clubs. Uh, the, 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 the management, the directors, the decision makers, they are really into uh, thinking everything through and, and uh, understanding that the better you understand the game, then the, the, the better chance you have of winning. So, 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 sorry, I, I think I think I might have phrased it wrong. What I mean is, from a player's point of view, is there an intellect to being good at football? Well, you have technique and you have game intelligence. Okay. So if you can, if you look at how the brain learns, there are basically two uh, ways the brain learns. Actually, three, but the third, the third, the third, the third one is called imprinting. It only happens just after you're born for the last couple, first couple of weeks, two months. And so you, you don't use it on football players because it's a bit young if you want to scout babies from three months. Uh, but the other two are uh, instrumental learning. Uh, there's something called the ABC model. Uh, and you two are in education, I uh, guess. So most of the time, uh, if you're in education, you know this model because that model shows very clearly that uh, consequences much more determine uh, future behavior than antecedents. Nevertheless, most uh, teachers, most parents, most uh, trainers, uh, coaches, they tell people up front what they should do and then, and then forget about actually rewarding people when they do uh, stuff that, they, that the manager wants them to do. So what happens with instrumental learning is that the brain makes a probability relation between uh, your actions and your behaviors and what your behaviors get. And in terms of football, that results to technique. So if you want, uh, so you, you learn to uh, kick the ball in just the right way, because then you know it, it will uh, reach the other player and he will be happy and then the, the team will cheer on you. So you get rewarded for that good behavior. The other way of learning is associative learning. That's basically where your brain takes two different uh, sense impressions. And if they're often uh, together at the same time or just uh, one after the other, then the brain is, again, making a probability as the uh, relationship between those two. The easiest to understand is if you see smoke, your brain goes, oh, there's smoke, there's probably fire. And that's what, what, that's what game intelligence is. And it's very important because it has to do with pattern recognition. And uh, so players have to do uh, many things <laughs> at the same time. But one of the things is scanning. They need to scan the um, environment constantly. And then, uh, and this is mostly done unconsciously. That is not a conscious skill that they can do because then it would take too much time. But players with a lot of game intelligence, they will much easier recognize patterns and already can pr pretty good predict uh, where players will go and they can take advantage of it. Of course, the, the, I think the player that is most famous for that is Messi, uh, who cannot, is constantly scanning and already very good at um, predicting uh, how things will go and then he will suddenly walk off and then all of a sudden he's, he's standing somewhere where it is very profitable for him. Uh, so in that sense, um, 
it is a very intellectual game, uh, but some players are very good at game intelligence and other are not so good at it. But it's a trainable skill. It's, it's purely uh, the way you're trained and how you learn to play football. So if you, what overrides what? If you've got good, a good reading of the game, is that preferable to have and then maybe like an average amount of skill? Or do you look at players and think, wow, they're incredibly skillful, but they just cannot read this game at all? So if I'm working with scouts and we're in the recruitment business, in a recruitment business, there's, they, they have much more prefer a player with a lot of game intelligence and lacking in skill than the other way around. Because even though uh, game intelligence is trainable, it's much harder to train than skills. Skills is much easier to train. And this is also uh, what, uh, because I, I'm only doing data analysis. So I, I'm clueless about football. Uh, I, I look at players and say, well, he looks nice. And everybody starts to laugh. <laughs> um, but the scouts I work with, uh, they can see stuff. So they, what the, the, the difficulty of live scouting or video scouting, but especially live scouting, is you see a player and he fails at something. But is he failing because he lacks the technique or is he failing because he lacks the game intelligence? Hmm. And, yeah. uh, and that is why sometimes uh, clubs hire players that I, if I look at the data, I go, oh, this is a bad player. How can you hire them? And they do brilliantly in the other team. But that's because the scouts have also a uh, complete uh, model in their brain or in their unconscious mind. And they can actually calculate unconsciously uh, whether the player is able to adapt and to uh, play in a different position, different role, different team, and then suddenly become a, a player who will do very well. In, I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of, of almost how evolutionary biology can, can be expressed through, through football. Um, yes. And when we're talking about that game intelligence, that at, at its core, it's effectively um, that spatial awareness that's developed is, is our, our predatory or our defensive instincts, isn't it? It's scanning the, the environment. So are some players, through quirks of, of uh, mutation, um, more evolutionary, uh, in an evolutionary sense, going to be more successful in terms of their game management ability because they're able to scan unconsciously, uh, subconsciously, um, so much more effectively than, than a player who, due to just the mutation of, of how their, their brain has, has, has come together, it, it, they might be skillful, but they've not got that ability um, as, as strongly. Have you, seen, have you seen any of that? Is that something that you would recognise? Uh, yes, well, it's speculation. Shall I quickly show you the kind of presentation that I give to football clubs on this topic? Yeah, incredible. Uh, let me just uh, start it up. So, oh, uh, can you then uh, allow me as a host to share my screen, uh, Simon? Of course. Yes, I can. Um, Right, multiple participants can share simultaneously. Excellent. So this is the company, Football Behavior Management. It's stolen from organizational behavior management. I teach it at a few university. I thought it better to steal it, uh, something that works than think of something myself. Mm -hmm. uh, no, there's no such thing as personality. I'm going through it very, very quickly. Uh, yeah. Instead, there are evolutionary yeah, yeah. patterns. Well, we base it in, in, in essence, it's based on something called complex system science. Uh, I go through it very 
quickly, but there are free requirements to deal with complexity. You have to, able to be able to scale, you have efficiency adaptability. Uh, the, the cybernetic big five theory, that is the best one. Big five, uh, maybe you are familiar with it, but yeah. these are basically yeah, yeah. Uh, the most, but this is personality, but we don't want it as personality, we want it as evolutionary behavioral patterns. So this is the, the standard model of cybernetic big five theory. Uh, has a lot of, uh, uh, it misses a lot of uh, uh, correlations that are not in the model, but that are in reality. This is, thing. This is interesting because this is work from a Polish uh, professor called Struz. He shows that these uh, big five um, um, behaviors do not, do not uh, uh, appear in reality in every single possible combination. There are like 25 different combinations if you have the big five and you can score high or low on uh, each of the big five. But he shows that there are actually only eight coming uh, around in uh, nature. Um, so here is what uh, I've developed. Uh, these big circles are uh, the four of the big five. And so agreeableness and then the opposite is antagonistic. And uh, consensuousness has an opposite is disinhibition an extraversion and detached and an open for experience and open reasoning. And you can see there are, there's something called uh, meta traits. Uh, you have social stability and, and you can score high on social stability, but then, then you will score low on autonomy or you can score high on autonomy and low on social stability. And the same goes, you can score high uh, on efficiency or exploitation and, uh, high, or, and then you score low on exploration or the other way around. And, um, and so far it's all uh, neuroscience, uh, very well founded. Uh, when I started doing this in 2008, it was still a, a very radical idea, but nowadays it is, uh, uh, it is part of the textbooks on psychology. How would you, sorry, how would you, I'm fascinated by this, this model that you've, you've um, developed here, the neurogram. How would you apply this to a, if you were looking and, and analyzing a certain player, what sort of conversations would arise out of, out of this? So basically, that's what I discussed this afternoon. Uh, if you have a type one perfectionist, then you know he is industrious and orderliness. And those are two behaviors that are very well suited for um, making it as a pro player. But if you have a uh, type nine, that's besides here, you have compassion and politeness, uh, but there's also laziness uh, hidden behind it and a lack of discipline. Uh, that's, that then you can still make it because there are, for instance, I, my guess is that Messi is a type nine mediator. But then we know that if you're, uh, that the, the, the team that uh, is uh, coaching you really has to take into account that laziness is a pitfall and that you have to hammer in how much important uh, discipline is. Uh, the part that is currently purely speculative, uh, we're working with players, uh, but we don't have enough data. Uh, the, the little bit of data that we currently have actually uh, um, supports the, um, uh, the model. For instance, uh, we work with a, uh, one of the goalkeepers of Everton. He was a type nine mediator. So he is, he is more into social stability. And my theory is, is that, uh, for, that you need social stability within the team for defending. Defending is something you do with, with every player. Um, well, as the opposite is attacking, attacking is much more an autonomous uh, activity. And so it's much more likely that the players that are autonomous 
are better at uh, attacking. For instance, uh, the uh, archetypal configure is uh, Marco van Basten. He's a type five, he's uh, very autonomous. And uh, so, but unfortunately I don't have enough data to uh, make it a, uh, I say a really hard claim. And then you have the, uh, the efficiency of first you have the exploration part. So you have, that's the scanning part. You have to explore the pitch to see if you can see opportunities. And if you see the opportunities, then you have to exploit the opportunities by uh, being very able to pass. So the exploration part is game intelligence and the uh, exploitation card is uh, technique. Hmm. Hmm. And creativity, autonomy is uh, very much linked into creativity. So if you have a creative player, um, then it's more likely that it is a player that is uh, uh, scoring on these uh, uh, behaviors and uh, defenders score more on these, these behaviors. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, I mean, what what would be what's quite interesting is um, if you look at um, Leeds United, a newly newly promoted size to the Premier, right. um, who they have a number of players who actually you, you I would probably put towards more towards that stability sort of side of things because the the manager seems to want to put across this idea of um, that compassion and politeness and that sort of side of things um, what's really interesting is they've had a player who's come in that they've bought this year um, Rafinha um, who seems to be a little bit more creative but I might be completely wrong here with this um, but he seems to have had a bit of a, a spark of creativity and and invention he still tracks back and defends for the team but actually he seems to be a little bit more individualistic in the way that he plays does that show um, in terms of for your scoring? So I actually, I've, because I knew that you guys like Leeds, so I actually prepared uh, myself. And this is the most uh, recent data on uh, um, uh, on Leeds. Uh, that's also because in the podcast you said, I want to know who are the twos at Manchester City. So I found the two at uh, Bamford. Um, I know he scored goals. but uh, So the issue is that when most people, including the professionals and the insiders and the, the, the scouts, they look at what players do well, mm. but they forget to look at what players uh, do not well, or mm. what, what they do badly. And the system I'm using is basically always uh, seeing, okay, how much good do you in return for how much bad? Yeah. Uh, and in the case of Bamford, he is, just has too much shot, shots off target mm. uh, for me to like him, uh, even though he scores a lot, but uh, if he would be more efficient, he would score even a lot more, at least, at least shoot on the goal. <laughs> so you have your so your feeling eh? so if you look at the, the social stability which is defense mm -hmm. then you can see that there are quite a number of players that have uh, uh, pretty high defense mm -hmm. so it seems that uh, that's also what i saw this afternoon when i did this is that it, it looks like a team that is uh, in, indeed uh, mostly concerned with uh, defending and uh less concerned with attacking. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot see whether um, the player is cre creative, uh, even though if you look at Ravinia, these are numbers that are often associated with creative players, but I would have to ask a video or a live scout to actually yeah. inform me on, on whether what, they are creative or not. What's interesting use with this is that, that 
pundits and uh, whether it's to Leeds or whether it's for there's been a variety of teams in the premiership that um, this year the punditry has been particularly woeful in terms of quite lazy and one of the things that they've said about Leeds is that they attack in a gung-ho manner um, without any thought of defence when when actually they're they're posting one of the highest statistics in terms of ball recoveries in the premiership in terms of how many passes they allow the opposition to make before they um, enact either a, a turnover of possession or or immediately putting pressure on on a player. So actually, your model shows that actually, um, although they seem to be on the surface in in a sort of a a very surface level reading of it, an attacking side, actually what you're seeing here, and I think it fits what what actually a lot of the statisticians are showing, is that actually this this seeming attacking um, formation that they play is actually based on on a lot of defence, and it sort of fits the players that they seem to have as well. Uh, yes, definitely, yeah. I, I, I'm interested in, in where the manager has an impact on people's, on individual players. I think what's interesting about this is that Leeds attack and defend as a single unit. And so instead of having teams within teams, like, so, like some other teams do, um, noticeably in the, in the premiership, you kind of have units of players that, that kind of take charge, if you want, when certain periods of play happen. The, the videos are not, but when, when Leeds lose the ball, the entire team attacks, right. attacks the other team and just to get the ball back. And when they, when they attack together, you'll see the whole team come up to the halfway line um, and they will all attack. And you're as likely to see a defender in the box getting the ball as you are a winger or, or, or a centre forward. So yeah. just thinking about how um, managers affect teams. That, uh, so basically, is, there, is there a case in point to say that if you have a really strong-willed manager or a manager that imprints his personality on the players, does that skew your model a little bit? And I don't, not a model. Uh, it will skew, of course, it will skew the uh, results that get out of the model. Uh, but then we can, you, then you can see, uh, for instance, what I told you about Bacerni, that uh, he was doing. Uh, of course, he did not do as good enough for Ajax uh, to uh, stay there, uh, but he did really well in uh, in the uh, the second team for Ajax. That's why we showed him to FC Utrecht. Uh, hey, this is an interesting player for you. FC Utrecht um, uh, bought him. And uh, but then he got into a conflict with the manager. Didn't play well, and he did and played only a few matches. And fortunately for me, FC Twente then still believed in him, hired him, and um, they actually got him on loan from FC Utrecht. And then he did brilliant for FC Utrecht. Uh, sorry, for for FC Twente. And then, uh, well, I, I I at least felt vindicated. And then. Uh, but that has mainly to do with his relation with the manager. So I, the model still works. The model shows he is uh, playing well in this team, not so well in this team, and well in the, the third team. And then we can, then you then we have to figure out. Okay, do we know uh, the reason? I don't know the reason. So I ask again. I asked uh, my uh, colleagues, uh, live and uh, video scouts, and I say, hey, what's the reason? And they tell me, well, he did not get along with the manager in, with, at uh, FC Utrecht. Interesting, interesting. And um, um, is there any correlation or triangulation when it comes to deciding things like um, how much teams are willing to pay for a player? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's not in this model, but we have a model that can actually calculate uh, what we call the replacement value. 
how much do you have to spend to get a player uh, that will either get uh, as efficient uh, or as, uh, as much contribution to the team as the player that is leaving or that you're selling. Um, or if you are able to, uh, uh, you can either buy a player with the same uh, uh, contribution or probable cont contribution, or you can buy uh, a, a cheaper player with less contribution, but then you have more money to pay other uh, to buy other players. So actually, we uh, did this for Willem II, one of the other Dutch teams. Uh, they had a striker called Frans Sol, Spanish striker, uh, who did very well in the Netherlands. And Dynamo Kiev uh, wanted to buy him, and Dynamo Kiev or, uh, offered uh, Willem to 3 million euros. Uh, but uh, Transfermarkt is the, the famous uh, website where you can look up uh, transfer fees. That's uh, within the, within the uh, professional football world, Transfermarkt is always laughed at because it's, it's, not, that, uh, it's not that reliable. But, but, but Fransol was uh, valued at 5 million euros. So Willem II had uh, to make a decision. Do we accept the lower um, deal of uh, 3 million or are we going to wait and see if we can get 5 million from a different club? Um, and then they asked me to calculate it. I calculated 2 million. Uh, that was the replacement value of Fransol to Willem II. And so when they saw that, they thought, oh, 3 million is 50% uh, more. Let's take the deal. And I think they're very happy with the deal. Another player that we had uh, was Dalmau, another Spanish striker that we found for Heracles. And uh, we showed the data like this. We showed them that he had uh, a very high finishing uh, probability. So they were interested. All the other probabilities were quite low, by the way. Uh, but we also calculated that he would be worth 1.75 million euros after one season. And they actually sold him one season later for 1.7 million. So it's like 50,000 close to what we, uh, what we actually calculated. So replacement value is not the same as transfer fees because often, sometimes the market uh, does really crazy stuff, but uh, at least it gives the clubs a, um, uh, I say a measure of whether to see when uh, a deal is attractive for them or not. Thanks for that use, that, that's really helpful. Um, should we should we stop sharing the screen and come back to our, our view? Thank you for that. Um, one of the things I'd like to to discuss a little bit in terms of is anomalies. Um, mm -hmm. So so your model and and please tell me how I'm getting this completely wrong. Generally points towards on the balance of probabilities using this model. This is the best thing that you should go for. Um, but football obviously throws up every so often um, some real anomalies. Um, could you could you tell, speak into a little bit more of, of to the reasons why these things might happen um, here and there and and whether or not they they happen more commonly in football than you would expect in say if you were using um, a, a, that sort of model for business for example a business that's been running for a number of years to try to increase that efficiency um, yes so those anomalies is something that I'm I'm quite interested in good I'm going to share my screen again because. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but then I'm going to show you this is the uh, all the calculations behind it. But 
Here what, we have... we'll do, what we'll do, Eust, if that's all right, is um, uh, we'll also describe what we're seeing for those that are going to be listening. Um, yes, if you are listening, then we do recommend you head over to our YouTube channel um, because you'll be able to see, because um, Eust is showing us some, some amazing things that um, Stuart understands a good 25% of. I can see it. Um, um, but um, what we're what Eust is showing us is, is the graphs that back up and, and show kind of what he's been... Um, what he's discussing with us as well. So we do recommend if you are listening to this um, on, um, on, on, the, on a podcast, then to head over to our YouTube channel um, so you can see the, the video of this as well. It's a so good point. You. I've completely forgotten that some people are only listening to this. That's okay, <laughs> that's fine. We, we'll go that way. Yes. So the, 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 one of the first things that is important is to actually start stop thinking in terms of what is called point probabilities and um, start thinking in terms of distributions. So what the, the list I just showed you that uh, the listeners did not see actually has point probabilities. It will say uh, it is 90 probability that the player will contribute to the defense of Leeds. And I said, well, Bamford has uh, quite a low um, finishing uh, probability due to that he is, uh, has so many shots off target. But here's Bamford again as a graph, and you, for those the listeners who not uh, cannot see it, there are actually three different graphs within the thing, and these show the Poisson uh, distribution, and um, basically the, the more to the right uh, the graph is, the better. So you can see that uh, as in Dutch currently, but the green uh, part that is basically passing or uh, effort, everything that is uh, being done with the ball before there is a uh, opportunity to score or the other team has the ball. And you can see that it's actually uh, an area between 60 and 80 probability. So the, the average will be around 70. But anything within this uh, green graph will not be a an anomaly. anomaly. Uh, again, you can see that finishing the blue one and uh, uh, defending the red one are quite low for Bamford. Well, defending is very uh, easy to understand. Uh, finishing has to do with him uh, shooting too many uh, uh, off-target uh, balls. Um, but again, even though the uh, uh, point probability is at, is at 10%, you can see that the actu in actuality it's between something like 23 and 0%. So it's, it's, as long as you start um, stop thinking in terms of uh, points and start thinking in terms of distributions, a lot of the anomalies uh, disappear. Um, for instance, if you look at the Dutch competition, there's a team called uh, Willem II, I already talked about them, and they did, last time they did very well. They actually uh, made it, they qualified for the Europe League, and this year they're fighting against regulation, might even be regulated. So that looks like an uh, uh, anomaly. How is it possible? Going, playing in the same year, both in the Europe League and... and um, and fighting against regulation. How is it possible? But if you look at their data in, in terms of uh, distributions, you can see that they have a 50% uh, chance of fighting against regulation each season, uh, based on the results for the last 10 years. And um, being able to uh, uh, qualify for the Europe, Europe League, or the European League, whatever, and also still falls within the distribution. It is uh, highly unlikely that it happens, but it still is like a five or six percent probability. Uh, but it still falls within the pro within the distribution. So um, that means that uh, even though it looks like an anomaly from the outside, 
uh, it is actually not an anomaly. So it's within it's within the bell curve of, of, of exactly uh, exactly yes. I've, I've got a, I've got one, a, one more remark. So go on. Because the really interesting thing is, and it's also the hardest to do, is to uh, uh, I don't know how you call them in in, in English, but the, the one day superstars or the one season superstars, especially in the Dutch uh, the, uh, competition, you have players who do very well, uh, strikers who do very well, but then. Um, fail to uh, uh, do uh, well when they're sold to and play in a different competition. So that is something that uh, is the most difficult part. But we have a, we have a system that it is not perfect, of course. And uh, we prefer to uh, miss, uh, we rather not hire a superstar than hire a bad player. So our system is very much biased into a negative system in the sense that we are very, you can see what we think of Bamford. Um, I think that many Leeds uh, fans would be very annoyed at how we look at Bamford and go, what, he's our striker, he's the 12 goals, what are you talking about? Um, and that is, does not say that Bamford is a bad player, it's just that uh, hiring Bamford is a big risk. And we are not, uh, I don't like taking risks, so I'd rather search for a different player that has less risk. Mm -hmm. uh, even though Bamford might be hired by, I don't know, Leicester and then do brilliant at Leicester. Um, it, it, so, so it's, it's actually what, what, what that's doing is, is it's managing risk rather, and it, it's not getting lost in, I guess, in some ways, the personality. And, and, and I'm really interested in, in your appreciation of football use because um, Stu will be able to tell you, we've, we've been to many of a football match together um, and I, I am a hugely emotional um, fan and logically i i know all of this stuff is going on in the background and and actually um particularly the more we, we discuss things with with people like yourself realize that actually there's a lot of numbers behind the game but i i'm, I'm still so driven by emotion do you find that your appreciation of football has 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 changed as you've delved further into this or has it has it widened it has it limited it slightly do you enjoy football less or more um, I never enjoyed football that much uh, to begin with. Um, I, uh, but what, one of the things that, that is really different is that I used to uh, like to watch the, uh, I say, the summaries uh, at Sunday night. Uh, if I, had, I, I train a lot and we often do it in the weekends, Friday, uh, Saturday and Sunday. And then on Sunday night, I would become be very tired, just watch uh, the summaries of the matches of the weekend. And I can't do that anymore. I've now watched so many football matches to create a model. I've watched literally three or five, four thousand matches. And I, I don't understand how people can enjoy a summary. You're, you're, it's like saying, yeah, for these five, these are the five minutes highlights. Yes. And what happened in the other 85 minutes? So I, that's that's something that really changed. I, I cannot see uh, a summary or a highlight. And I guess your appreciation of, of what goes on is different because I, I guess what you also need to be, be seeing for part of your model is, is the whole pitch in some ways in terms of what's the right back doing when they don't have the ball because that's also going to be quite important in terms of attaching a score to them. Yes, but fortunately I have a team in the Philippines uh, who does uh, that for me. <laughs> so they even watch even more of the video than I do. Um, and, uh, uh, but uh, you have to remember, if I watch football, I'm also using the tool we built to actually um, uh, uh, tag players what they, where they contribute to positive results or negative results on the pitch. 
So uh, I also, when I watch football, I only see one team. So if you, uh, that's the team that I'm analyzing and the other team, if you ask me questions about that, I have no clue what they did. Uh, so it's uh, very different. It's also what's very different is watching from television or, or live. I've done, because we can do it in real time, for uh, Kortrijk in Belgium, we actually done it uh, while sitting on the, the, the stands. And that is so, so much different from uh, how football looks, uh, if you see it at, uh, uh, at the telly. But the real issue here is, is that you guys, that is what also could took from your podcast, is you guys are the customer. Uh, football is not a sport, football is entertainment. Uh, if football was unable to uh, get you emotionally aroused uh, like that during the matches, they, you wouldn't give your money to the football clubs. Well, uh, is- that's, that's quite true. Uh, that, that's quite true. I, it's interesting. Uh, it doesn't take much to get so emotionally aroused, I have to be honest. Um, when we go to the football, um, we have very different ways of, of looking at football. And it, this is why we are interested in philosophy alongside football as well, because... I think what we do is we take our philosophy of life from the street and walk into a football ground and then, and then it's kind of distilled in this mad arena of, of, of high emotions. I'm quite diplomatic. Um, I see us going to go down and I say, well, you know, the season evens itself out and everything's okay and we're having a bit of a bad half an hour and things will buck up and someone will say something and a leader will emerge, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Simon sits on the edge of his seat and starts gnashing at his fingers and and cursing in players mothers and stuff like that um the, the thing is uh, one thing that i said on the last podcast was that i'm slightly unnerved by statistical analysis especially when we use the word philosophy so i guess for me the reason why football is so intriguing is it's almost like a chess match where there's an infinite amount of moves and i think the reason why i love philosophy is because there are no answers and when a manager is sacked or a player is the, the, the hot thing at the moment, or, and then, as you say, half a season later, no one cares who they are. For me, that's the unanswered question. No one really knew that was going to happen. No one really knew that that was going to work out. Whereas what you're doing is you're finding unequivocal truth within football. No, no, no. Which makes me nervous. <laughs> yes, no, I hate truth. Truth doesn't exist except <laughs> for mathematics. There's no truth in reality. There's only probability. So... Uh... That's also what the head of coaching of Ajax told me uh, when ah. we first met. He said, yeah, but if, if you're able to calculate it, everything, I quit. I don't, want, <laughs> I don't want to have this job if, if everything is known beforehand. Um, many times when you have those players that uh, nobody's interested in half a year later, the insiders knew. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there are very few surprises for the insiders. Uh, do, you, do you look at the um, do you look at the state of football and you know handing over hundreds of millions of pounds for players and players on you know half a million pounds, seven hundred thousand pound a week, you know in wages? And do you see that as a um, do you see that as some some form of spoiling the sport or people just completely misunderstanding what's going on? Or do you think that that's just par for the course? Uh, I think they're misunderstanding. Yeah. There's, uh, within philosophy, but again, this is uh, ethics and social philosophy, part of continental philosophy that I hate. <laughs> I think there is Rawls with his uh, um, uh, theory about uh, if you're born behind the curtain and you uh, uh, 
you, before you're born, you're are asked how you want to organize society, that everybody wants to have it as equal as possible, because then you have the biggest chance to land in a good place. Yeah. I don't buy that at all. There's a counter argument that says, yeah, but how about if we have this basketball player who is really, really a wonderful player, fantastic player, and he just asks everybody one quarter um, uh, to see him play. Um, then you get a huge uh, disequality. Uh, he'll, he will earn a lot of money, but almost everybody else is almost the same. You only, you only one quarter less than you, than you would have otherwise. Mm. So I don't care about the, uh, the salaries whatsoever. I do care about it, but it has to do with the ABC model that I explained with yeah, instrumental yeah. learning. So what you see, if you have a youthful talent, he gets a lot of positive consequences for the things he does right. But then he becomes a superstar and then he gets fans and he gets paid. And then he gets a lot of positive consequences for everything he does. Yeah. And then he can also see that his uh, negative behaviors are positive uh, reinforced. And so he starts to become an asshole. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the best example is Memphis Depay, who played for yeah. Manchester United. And he had this period where he was completely uh, positive reinforced for all the negative shitty behaviors that he did. Mm -hmm. And then he, when he was a superstar, and unfortunately, he had a big failure at uh, Manchester United and that uh, brought him down uh, to uh, normal levels again. And then he became um, a uh, player. I'm thinking about Balotelli when you're talking. Yes. But uh, I, have, I ask myself whether Balotelli has the mental uh, capabilities to actually understand positive re rewards and stuff like that. <laughs> Where would he rank? Like in terms, if someone came to you and said, oh, you know, we haven't got much money. Um, we need to get out of this league. Um, Balotelli's an incredible player. Where, do, where would he, where would he, um, wh wh what would you advise? He's currently, okay, this is Mario Balotelli, right? Yeah. I can put him in the system, see how, you, how he now ranks. That will take about two minutes, maybe one. I'm very quick. Uh, he plays at Monza currently. He's been around, so since, since his sort of... His yeah, he's yeah, played he, for second teams and all sorts. He hasn't played much uh, this season, so let's take the previous season when he was playing for Brescia. And then... Because I really don't care about all the stories. I'm only interested in the stats. And they're, they're calculating. And that's and that use that that's for me is is the fascinating thing because it's a lot of the conversations around football, particularly in the UK, are around the story. And yes. It's it's as you were talking about. Even even our conversation has strayed at times into that continental philosophy sort of side of things. Um, that, that that is is a sort of antithesis to what you're 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 doing. And 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 actually, there's 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 a brutal there's a brutal nature to what you're doing because actually, what it says is it doesn't matter. This stuff doesn't really matter. It's it's this stuff that I'm interested in and this stuff that translates onto the pitch. Right. And that, and that's, that's fascinating for us as, as, as you're right, where, where the, where the, where the client, where the users, where the ones that, that plow humble. For now, for now, but it's changing. So the issue, Balotelli, by the way, scores a two. So he did very, very badly. <laughs> I would not hire Balotelli, no matter how much money I would get uh, from his manager. Um, 
the but the issue is is that uh, for now and it depends on which country so in the uk the defense are such a big in, source of income especially through uh, television rights but in the netherlands the most of the income is through the people going to the stadium it's not through the, uh, the television rights and uh, you can clearly show that if they make a couple of good transfers uh, that they will earn more money with uh, transfer fees than they would uh, earn from um, um, the people visiting the stadium so the issue here is is that most it's, it's entertainment but most fans are particularly entertained when their team is winning <laughs> and somehow losing is not that entertaining uh, for fans that's one of the reasons why the club has an interest in actually uh, uh, hiring players that will make sure that they uh, win uh, matches. Yes. But uh, the, given that there are now so much, there's now so much money involved in transfer fees, is that they can actually now make more money uh, based on transfers than uh, with uh, the audience. Mm. So the moment the team uh, understands that they can now earn more money with transfers then uh, the, all the concerns about the public uh, go out of the window. They will just uh, hire players that they can see, okay, here we can get a, a free agent uh, and uh, we can probably sell him for one or two million euros next season. Okay, we'll get him. Doesn't make us a champion, but uh, he will make us money. Mm. So, and that is, I would say now, there are a couple of clubs that are already running like that. Um, there is what's the uh, uh, there's a Romanian club from my heart. Uh, I forgot the name. Uh, Trenchin. Trenchin is run by a Dutch guy, uh, uh, and he is running the club only to uh, make money with through transfer fees. He doesn't care uh, anything else, and um, and that's he's doing very well. He's he's, he's hiring uh, excellent players uh, very cheaply and then sell them for millions. Uh, you can see that actually in the championship, the, the second tier of, of English yes. um, with um, a team called Brentford, who um, each year are in and around the playoffs. So they're, they're increasing the, the probability, the, the possibility that they could get that big payout to get into the premiership. But they also um, every year say goodbye to two or three of their top performing players who they might have spent a couple of million at most on, but quite often they'll go for in excess of 20, 25, 30 million we've had before from Brentford. And it's a model that seems to be working really well for, for a, a, a relatively small club in terms of London standing. Oh yeah. And that's, and they have no history, like they have very little history. So it's not like one of the big, like there's no Ferrari around it. They, they're, it's just, um, they're just a business model. And the good, the good thing about it is, is that uh, you have to sell, when you do very well as a team, you have to sell your players. So when Leicester uh, uh -huh. became, uh, won the Premier, uh, Premier League, I, I was screaming, sell the players! And they didn't. <laughs> of course, they should Which have. they have done. Uh, well, they have a couple, but they didn't sell Fardy. They should have sold Fardy for all the... Well, money. it's interesting, isn't it? Because Leicester's a really interesting case in point. Because if you look down like their last um, five sales, then you're looking at plays they got for scraps. And then they've sold it to, obviously, Maguire to Manchester United for £80 million. They've sold um, Riyad Mahrez to Man City. They've, they've basically gone to the big teams with all of this expendable money and said right hand over if you want our players but they've replaced really shrewdly really really shrewdly um 
And um, th- that seems to be, do you think that business model for football will just take over the game now? Uh, not completely, but more and more clubs will, will move to that, to that model. Because I get the feeling that, you know, we hear about Barcelona and Real Madrid being skint now, don't we? That They haven't got any money. They're not going to be buying any big players anytime soon. So it's interesting because, you know, we spoke about Leeds United and then their chairman came out and said, we want to do the, the Leicester model. Right. Uh, just to be clear, I do work for Leicester. I, youth, uh, I work for the uh, youth uh, development uh, Oh, really? Program. So uh, I do have a interest. And how are things looking for Leicester's youth development program? Uh, badly, because I was uh, looking for uh, uh, what is EU players for them, uh, youth players. And right. Brexit uh, basically destroyed that business for me. Right. Because you can't get, uh, I found a brilliant uh, right back, 14 year old uh, Danish player for Leicester. They were very interested, and then Brexit happened. So, so what does that mean in terms of why, why is that um, scuppered that? Because otherwise, they would, they would have uh, bought the parents. So you can't buy the player, so you buy the parents. And, uh, <laughs> and then he would have uh, moved to uh, Leicester uh, to uh, finish his uh, career there. Right. And now he can't do it. Um, right. And so the, the, what is important is that you have, to, you have this pyramid with the Premier League on top of it. Um, and uh, the Spanish uh, competition uh, is close to the top of it. So the, these are end leagues. This is where players end their careers. Yeah. And uh, all the other leagues that are below there are basically uh, feeding uh, Feeders, the pyramid yeah. uh, coming up. So for us, it's always very important to see, okay, which club are we working with? Um, where are they in the pyramid? Uh, which are the players that are below them that are interesting for them? And how can they sell them to the next layer of the, within the pyramid? And, but that is different for the Premier League because uh, well, Ajax is now and then uh, buying a player from the Premier League. But most of the time, uh, this is, that, that is where we want to send our players uh, to get the big cash out. And then yeah. you can keep them. Is there, um, is there any player in the Premier League or players um, just off the top of your head where you look at them and think um, that they are like latently good, like it, but, but they've not really been recognised yet? Do you, I don't know how much English football that you watch. Uh, we, uh, I haven't watched it for two seasons, so that's like <laughs> three seasons back. Basically because it is an end league and uh, the, the, the no, possibility yeah. of that you find a player that you will bring to the Netherlands or to Belgium uh, yeah. There's such a low chance that uh, unfortunately I spent uh, actually I watched uh, English football uh, this uh, week uh, just because it was on my schedule I watched the match uh, between Manchester United and Manchester City this weekend right okay and how did you find that I don't know was there a match between Manchester United and Manchester City this weekend it was. Um, it, it, it has been in the in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, Manchester. No, no, this, this was this was this Saturday, because I had to watch the under 18s. Right. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I watched. I only watch teams that are uh, that people go. Why would you watch that? Yeah, because we want to know whether there's a player playing for Manchester yeah. United under 18 that we can actually. Uh, and there's a Dutch guy playing for them. And we want to know whether that is a guy that we can potentially in two or three years uh, get to the Netherlands. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm also always, always watching uh, the, uh, I say, the least popular uh, clubs. <laughs> um, if you don't mind, can we just tiptoe away from football just a tiny bit? Because I'm interested in talking about philosophy. Right. Um, now, can I, can I ask, um, what's your, um, how does... What's your philosophical outlook on life? How would you, I call myself a nihilistic realist. Um, 
why, why would you be nihilistic? <laughs> I have to spend time with him. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, okay, yeah. But um, how do, how do you, um, you told us about how you kind of got into philosophy and how you studied it a couple of times and, you, and there's a certain amount. Of, I absolutely agree that you have to be a certain age to kind of like for it to hit home. Um, but how do you come to it intellectually? How do you come to it in terms of your life? Yes. So uh, first of all, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. Okay. So, uh, pragmatism is, I think, the most uh, valuable uh, school within philosophy. Uh, pragmatism is uh, best defined as uh, also being interested in other values uh, besides truth. <laughs> and I'm an extreme pragmatist in the sense that I don't recognize truth. I don't think truth exists. I think truth has to be defined, can only be defined within mathematics. There is no truth outside of mathematics. It's only, uh, only probability. This is uh, pretty much the line of subjective Bayesian statistics uh, as proposed by Professor Definetti. I think he's the, the, the best philosopher in the 20th century. Of course, everybody knows Wittgenstein. I, know, yeah. I also love uh, the older Wittgenstein. Uh, I think he was a pragmatist. Uh, so, uh, the, and then the, the whole pragmatist, then there is a pragmatist uh, that I particularly like. It's a philosopher called Stitch. He has written a book, uh, The Cognitive Science and the, of, no, the, the Case Against Belief. And uh, this has, to, this has uh, followed by enactivism. I don't know whether you have heard of the term enactivism. That's Alpha Noé. This has written a book about uh, out of our heads. And it has to do with that there are, uh, and, and again, I'm a very radical extreme um, uh, on this uh, line. I don't think there's any content inside our heads whatsoever. <laughs> so all, the, all the content that you generate, that we generate, we generate as a society. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a, a communal uh, thing. Mm -hmm. And inside our heads, there are only codes that reference uh, part of these uh, communal meanings. But there is no meaning inside our head. There's only syntax. Uh, so that is the uh, position of uh, Stitch uh, and uh, the radical enactivists. And that is... Uh, Basically, how I look, we are basically uh, um, pretty much zombies um, who have the fortunate that we have consciousness, uh, but we overestimate ourselves. Uh, we think that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on inside our heads, and there's not. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in society. Um, would you see that as quite a deterministic outlook? No, no, but it doesn't mean you have free will either. So it's a, basically a mistake to see everything as two opposites. There's a whole spectrum and uh, determinism makes no sense whatsoever because first of all, quantum mechanics, second of all, uh, probability. Uh, you, uh, in a world of probability, you can't have determinism, but it doesn't mean that you have a free will, uh, a free will, especially if uh, how free will, how lay people uh, define a free will, uh, makes no sense whatsoever. You have to be all-knowing. That's Nietzsche's point against the free will: is you have to be all-knowing to have a free will. Uh, if you if you lack information, you have to make a choice. How can that choice be free if you lack information? Now we always lack information, so we don't have free choices. No, don't have free will. But it doesn't mean that there is no such thing as freedom. You're still somehow, um, uh, how you say, uh, as a thing that we badly understand how it how it works but it makes multiple uh, uh, options possible. So we cannot uh, uh, predict uh, 
as, as absolute certainty what people will do or how the world will evolve or how society will evolve or how football will evolve. Uh, instead, we can only uh, come to probabilities or as I said before, the Divnetti has a brilliant term for it. What we do, we create previsions. We imagine how the world will be or how we will be and that has the, a certain likelihood, but there's no uh, absolute certainty. But it gives you a lot of freedom because then all other options that are highly unlikely, also, but, but they still become possible. So I love probability. It's, uh, probability gives you freedom, it gets you away from determinism. But you should not, uh, I say, then think that if determinism is not right, then we have to have free will because that's also highly unlikely. Used, um, that's a, a fantastic um, place, I think, for us to to bring our discussion to to a close because i can say that you you've been one of the most unique voices that we've we've spoken to through that uh, through this this process of, of recording this podcast and um i don't know about Stu, but it's it's made me um it's opened my eyes to a whole different area of philosophy um because you're right it's niche already um but particularly the area that you're espousing and um my hope will be that um we can carry on this conversation um at, at later dates and, and check in as we Definitely. go we go forward um but i um, from from the outsiders from from Stu and i um i just want to thank you so much for for spending the time with us for opening our eyes up to the fact that for the insiders in football there's very little that surprises them um but also um that continental philosophers can can hide under a rock and discuss whether or not it's a rock or not um and we'll we'll, we'll stick with probability and prevision exactly probability, um, probability solves a lot of philosophical problems you say, do we have a free will? Probably not. Okay, <laughs> end of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks. Thanks.